coming at it from a perspective in the in the United Kingdom, those sound bites and those sort of on the face of it very straightforward arguments suddenly become quite daunting when you're chatting to somebody about it and they go, "Well, that's not true, is it?" And then you go, then and then all of a sudden you you're kind of thinking, "Well, maybe it isn't. I'm not sure." It sounds it sounds very intuitive and it sounds like it should be how the system works. It sounds more convincing than that other sort of fairy tale that we're told. However, I don't know the details, so maybe it's not mm. true. You know, the Bank of England's independent after all, isn't it? So surely, surely the government doesn't create money, you know. And it's mm. at that it's at that point when the simple, really nicely rhetorical arguments kind of become a little bit more difficult and, and you need the detail. And mm. I think and I think what we set ourselves out to do, I think probably individually at first and then together, was to sort of try and pull together all of the detail and all of the evidence and actually ask ourselves, is it true? Is MMT true in the United Kingdom? Are some of the aspects true or are all of the aspects true? What is it? What's the answer to all of those questions? Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Contact me on Twitter or Facebook, and you can email me at activistmmt at gmail.com. If you're enjoying Activist MMT even a fraction as much as I enjoy creating it, and if you're safe and secure and happen to be lucky enough to have some public deficit kicking around in your pocket, I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. For as little as a dollar a month, 
You'll get exclusive content and updates, several days of early access to every episode, and for some, super early access, weeks and sometimes even months in advance. You can start by going to patreon.com slash activistmmt. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Whatever you can afford, I would be very grateful. Thank you. Now, on to our conversation. So, pleased, pleased to meet you, Jeff. You too, yes. Yeah. Thanks for sorting Yes, yourself. yes, thank you so much for all of you. Um, uh, hello to all three of you. Thank you so much for coming on. I have this has been a, a long time coming. Uh, so we're gonna get we're just gonna get right into your paper, and uh, let's do it. So uh, I'd like to start with the experience of uh, researching and writing the paper. So not deciding to write it, but rather after you made that decision, could you give some examples of just the experience of writing the paper? Like you know, just very briefly, like what. The- software did you use? How did you, what was your workflow? How did you take the work from three people and, and, you know, make it into a coherent whole? Let's, let's, let's just start with those. And that this can be, you know, rather brief. I kind of want to just get a sense of the meta of your experience. So however, the three of you, you know, want to attack that. Who started it then? Was that you, Richard? I suppose, yeah, I suppose, I suppose, um, well, I think probably myself and Andy uh, sort of um, both kind of kicked it off, but it came through an intermediary and we eventually got in contact and and chatted and uh, decided that we would attempt an investigation into government finance in the UK. And in terms of that experience, it was very frustrating, uh, given the uh, lack of uh, clear uh, information in the public domain. But we just basically bounced off of each other, myself uh, and Andy, and we did that for probably about 18 months or so. And... Uh, I think I'd agree with that. Um, yeah, and, and I think I think what we did in the first instance, Richard, was we both, I guess, started taking notes. Then we shared notes with each other using Google Docs. Um, Google which Docs. I, yeah, which I suppose is probably the main bit of software that we've used. Um, but yeah, that start that started off with just taking lots of notes, literally just bullet points and 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 sentences, paragraphs that we both that we were both making. And then we shared them with each other. We started to collaborate on building notes, and that kind of morphed into, I suppose, I suppose, synthesizing the notes and writing writing the notes up in into paragraphs and and I guess potential sections of a piece. But I think at that point we didn't really have a a, a coherent narrative, a coherent way to to unfold the entire story. And we, in fact, we didn't even understand the no, entire indeed. story no. at that point. So. Um. We, we, very, we very much built up lots of notes and lots of kind of descriptions of, of aspects of the system that, that we thought at some point would represent a part of something. But it, but it wasn't until probably autumn last year, was it, that um, we got a bit of a, a bit of a kick from, from our friend David to kind of get on with yes, something. Yes, we did. <laughs> and, uh, and, at, and at that point, we started to, I suppose, get, get a skeleton of a single coherent story. And that was the point at which Neil joined us as well, and all three of us then started to sort of flesh out that skeleton. I yeah. think Does yes. that sound sound accurate oh, to yes, everybody definitely. else. Oh, I, I'm curious. I'm actually surprised with Google Docs. Like, did you? Well, two things. Number one, I'm surprised Google Doc can handle something that long. Uh, and yeah, number I, two, <laughs> and number two, I'm I'm curious. Like, did you all have edit access? And and the reason I'm asking that is because. When everyone has edit access, it can get chaotic. You can you can mm-hmm. lose track of who's doing what, and you know, like like I when I write an article, I have an I have an editor, and I give him suggestion access. I do not give him edit access. So I'm like I'm curious of you know. Yeah, that's we we all had edit access. We, we were all um, we were all accessing the document at the at the same time, but obviously it's long. So you uh, you get to this situation where obviously in Google Docs you can see other people editing. So if you see somebody else having a go at a section, you tend to leave it alone and go and do something else. And we we kind of split up into into our uh, sort of speciality areas. There, I was doing mostly the accounting structure, so I was working in in the sheets and actually importing sheets into the uh, into the document. That the historical tend to be what Richard was doing, and then Andy was doing the. Uh, um, doing the narrative, the writing, most of the long writing is Andy's stuff. Okay. So you said, 
you said that you didn't even have a like I don't remember exactly how you worded it, but but basically you were just kind of diving into details, and it took a while for it to become this is the story that this is the through line. Can you describe the experience of we had, you had all these different pieces, and then all of a sudden you realized this is how we have to do it as a as a whole? Yeah, I mean from. It was important uh, from my perspective to uh, investigate the historical aspects. I wanted to go back in order to then work forward, because I even reading the the modern day documents that you know sit on the government websites, it's very difficult to uh, enter the language uh, that they use and and break it open to understand it. So I that was my point of view. I, I came from I, I went back and uh, accessed old uh, literature, old books about the Bank of England and, and the Treasury, and kind of worked forward. Whilst Andy, I think, was more working on the on the current sort of documentation. Um, and then we would sort of synthesize our work together and uh, and we would both sort of work in our in our sort of little uh, areas. And and it was just sort of chatting away um, and talking and we were doing that for probably about 18 months. Um, before things yeah. started to sort of fall into place. I mean, what what I was going to say was that um, I think for for a long time, Richard and I felt we had the pieces together, and I'm and I'm sure Neil as well. In fact, you know, mine and Richard's experience of Neil goes 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 back, you know, years before this when we would read his articles and get insights and that sort of thing. I think probably all of us had most of the components in our head, but to me, it was more more how do we unfold the story? Do we talk about um, how the Bank of England works first? Do we talk about what what are government bonds really? You know, issues about what's the definition of money? How do you unfold the story so that you describe each of those really important components in this com- complicated system in the easiest way? And I don't necessarily know that we've done that, um, but I did, I did feel, I think, to, to me, when... I kind I kind of realised that if we describe just the spending system on its own first, and how and how that has its roots in legislation, and how that introduces money into the economy through through what is essentially an advance via the Bank of England, I suddenly realised that that was a story on its own, and you could really end the story at that point if you wanted to, uh, because any spending in that sense in the UK becomes an entry in what is known as the Ways and Means account, the government's overdraft in, in quotes. Um, and when I realised that that was a coherent story in and of itself, I think that that settled it for me. You know, that was the way to lead in and unfold that story. And then you could treat uh, taxation and the sale of bonds as separate processes that follow, that don't proceed, they follow. Um, and, mm. I think, and I think realising that that was a way that you could unfold a story Bring in each component at a, at a at an appropriate point in point, and then end up with a coherent a coherent system being described. Um, that that was Indeed. I think I think that was the point for me that, that it, it all kind of started to become more coherent. Yes, it was when you um, basically described it or titled it an accounting model. That was the sort of the, almost the bingo moment for me, and uh, and then we kind of knew where we were going. But that said. In general terms, you know, knowledge from reading, uh, you know, modern monetary theory, and, and knowing that ultimately bank accounts were being credited, that was we knew that that was what the end game was. But the devil was in the detail. It was about working out how that process actually happened internally within government within the banking system, and it's not immediately obvious reading the the, uh, the documentation that is within the public domain. It takes a lot of unpicking. That's true, and uh, I mean the the other thing that turns up quite naturally from taking this approach of looking at the spending and looking at the taxation separately is that you realise that that's actually how it works within Parliament as well. There are actually two completely separate legislative processes. That uh, one that brings about the capacity of the government to spend, and one that brings about its capacity to tax. Uh, one of the, I don't know, it's a, it's a, a peculiarity of the UK, but it's certainly, um, uh, it's certainly one that gets repeated regularly, is that income tax is an annual tax in the UK, 
if they don't pass an act to collect it, then they can no longer collect it. And actually, uh, it actually expires annually. Hmm. And that's been the case since 18, whenever it was. I forget the exact date. You don't know which day it was. Which I date. Well, I know it was, I know it was, it was raised to, uh, to, to, um, start to fund the Napoleonic war, wasn't it? That was the, uh, that was the uh, the pretense on which it was brought yes. in. Mm. As, as an income tax, you mean? Mm. Yes, yes, as an income yes, tax. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. 1797, yeah. I think it was. Mm. Yeah, mm. that's it. Mm. Wow. Okay. So it was brought in as an income tax, and it's been renewed annually mm. ever since. Wow. Um, but and uh, but the thing is, is that the spending process, which is which is the actual what's called the supply estimates process, when that goes into Parliament, it get, it gets it gets passed on what's called the nod. In other words, there's no debates about it. There's no discussions or anything like that. Essentially, there's this 600-page document gets given to Parliament and the MPs just go, yeah, that's fine. Uh, off you go. Um, and that's how our, our system works. We don't get arguments over, uh, over spending when it gets to the supply estimate processes. They're just approved and off they go. The arguments is over the, uh, over the tax raising, <laughs> raising side. That's when there's only a debate on what's called the finance bill. Um, there's no debate at all, really, on the uh, on the supply and estimates process, the uh, the appropriation system. It's just uh, it's just passed. And I assume the tax debates are fr- framed in the sense that you know we need to pay for this stuff. Entirely. Yeah, that's how they're framed. Yeah, yeah that's how they're yeah. framed. But what's interesting is that the um, the finance bill um, goes into Parliament after. Uh, the advances for the supply estimates have already been passed. So the supply estimates for the uh, for the financial years, which in, in the UK financial years start at the beginning of April, on April the 1st, um, and the supply estimate advances for that are passed in February. Hmm. Uh, and then the finance bill, the arguing, arguing about the tax, is then done in March. Uh, and that act doesn't then get passed until July, after the start of the uh, financial year. So we always have this... We have this strange system where we uh, we can tax in advance of the actual bill being passed in, in anticipation. Mm. And all these things are like echoes. Everything is done in anticipation of something happening. Mm. And when you then look back into the historical records, you find that um, nearly everything ends up being done in, an- in anticipation of tax being collected, which, uh, which shows over hundreds of years that tax is always collected after all the, uh, all the spending has been mm. done. Um, I think it was we were looking at it the other day, Richard, Charles II, wasn't it? Yes, well, um, it goes back even further than that. So you can delve into um, some of the, the sort of old literature about the ancient exchequer. Um, reading some of the very, very old documents that are written in Latin going back to the 12th century, they give a, a very good overview of how the exchequer at that time worked. And part of the mechanism of uh, spending was uh, to issue tally sticks, which were known as tally of pro. And they were like a check that you could cash on tax collectors in the countryside where they were actually physically collecting the tax in coinage. When they issued a tally stick, a tally of pro, they would write the amount that the tally was written for, not only in the issue book, but also in the receipt book. Uh, anticipating its return to the exchequer at some point in the future. So for many centuries, the English exchequer anticipated tax. Okay. Oh. Yeah, that's actually where the term tax return comes from. It's uh, the, we, we literally return the stick back to the exchequer. Oh. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, the, uh, that's the origin of the, uh, of the phrase. Right. Um, okay, great. Uh, so one more about the meta, one more question about the meta is is uh, regarding uh, public records requests. Um, you had you, you said an ex- interesting experience on uh, MMC podcast about you asked like I think it, I don't remember exactly, but something like you asked Treasury of where does the money come from, and they said it's it's not in the public interest to say. So I wanted to ask uh, your experience with public rec- records requests, like if you each have perhaps like a, an anecdote of, of, uh, of resistance that you received or a document that shocked you. Um, and I also and I also kind of wish that those uh, that those rejections were like in an appendix so we could see them. Um, but public records requests is particularly uh, an interesting subject to me. So if uh, if if uh, you could address that. 
Well, it's Andy that keeps getting rebuffed, isn't it, Andy? Go on. Yeah, I do. Yeah, well, that's because I keep asking uh, Her Majesty's Treasury questions, whereas you've got the good sense to ask um, HM Revenue and Customs. Um, that's right. Yes. So, I ask the, yeah, task, I ask the task, tax collectors. <laughs> Actually, if I, if my, I want to say one final thing before you go on, which is I was surprised when I did read your public records requests, which I love. I really enjoyed uh, looking at those. I'm glad that you had all those linked. They seemed pretty candid. They seemed like very direct and not giving you much trouble. Like they just answered your questions. That seemed that seemed surprising to me. So, yeah, it, it depends which one you're talking to. But yeah, they they if they, they, they the Freedom of Information system worked in the UK works really well. I mean, we, I wrote to to the Northern Irish Exchequer, um, and I think they were actually really rather surprised that somebody wasn't asking about uh, something appalling that goes off in Northern Ireland. And they, they were just really pleased to get somebody who was asking a sensible question, which is <laughs> just, you know, where where do you keep your bank account? And they, they were, uh, they couldn't, couldn't be more helpful, really. Hmm. And and that's when we discovered, actually, that the Northern, I- Northern Ireland has a completely separate exchequer hmm. from the rest of the United Kingdom, which is something that I wasn't aware of until until that particular point but obviously when you then look back into history it 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 follows from the um um from the partition of ireland uh, a century ago um and uh, but yet although it's at a separate bank and in a uh, um in a in a separate um completely separate um operational structure um it's pegged to the united kingdom pound and therefore it operates in sterling due to that mm-hmm. due to their choice to uh, to to peg to the to the British pound and to transfer their money back, or to put their money on deposit with the Exchequer. Okay. You've had some rebuffs, Richard, haven't you? Um, yeah, I, I had. Uh, I was just trying to think. Actually, um, uh, there was one I think that I, I wrote to HMRC. I'm struggling to remember the detail of it, but uh, they again the, the choice words uh, in response, uh, which we've had a number of times, were the fact that, as you've already alluded to, that it's not within the public interest to uh, to let this out into the public domain, um, which is quite shocking, really, when you think about it. This is uh, nothing could be more of uh, public interest than how the government spends. Um, and so it is. Uh, it was. It was quite a shock to to receive a rebuff like that. I think, but based on the uh, based on the um, the general principle that nothing's true until officially denied, the mm-hmm. latest one that Andy's got is the uh, is the clincher, isn't it? Well, maybe. Yeah. I mean, uh, so the, the 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 latest one that we got, Jeff, um, was we asked. So HM Treasury, I think. I think it's probably fair to say they're probably the ones that that don't give answers as easily as some of the other institutions. So the Bank of England's okay. It, it, the HM Revenue and Customs, which is our kind of tax agency, they're, they're, they're pretty good. The Debt Management Office, uh, they're okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I think the Treasury itself are probably the most kind of uh, hardball. And the, rec- yeah, the recent one we asked them about, so you've, you've probably gathered from our paper that there's, there's this main entity called the Consolidated Fund. And then it has a kind of sister called the National Loans Fund, which was only, only introduced in 1968. And the way that the Consolidated Fund works, it goes back to this, this Act of Parliament from 1866, whereby um, if, if Parliament authorises some spending, then there's literally a sort of a legally provisioned credit that it, on the Consolidated Fund that is then cashed by the Bank of England under the order of Treasury. And so really what that does, it means that any any bit of legislation that ties some expenditure to the consolidated fund uh, it becomes money at the Bank of England, you know, by law. Um, mm. And and that, that's all pretty clear, I think. Um, but the National Loans Fund has kind of a similar arrangement, but there's one missing link. There's one missing link in the legislation. There isn't a provision in legislation whereby the Treasury can order the bank to cash a credit on the National Loans Fund. And we asked HM Treasury about this, and we said, right, okay, that's, this is how the Consolidated Fund works. Anything that, that, is, that is charged on the Consolidated Fund turns into money at the Bank of England. What about the National Loans Fund? How does that work? Why isn't there a clause in legislation that makes that same link? Now, and I kind of gave them what I think is the answer, and the answer is, <laughs> the answer is that there is a clause in the National Loans Fund legislation that says, by the way, the National Loans Fund has recourse to the Consolidated Fund. So basically, if the National Loans Fund doesn't have any money of its own, 
anything that is charged upon it can be charged on the consolidated fund. And that's really the link. That's that's really the the link. And I just I kind of just asked um HM Treasury to to confirm that, confirm or deny it. And they refused to. Um hmm. claiming that it recourse would recourse means backed by? Backstopped by? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Okay. Yeah. Um yeah, it's yeah, basically char- yeah, charged it, on and paid out of. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, did you ask that same question to the other side of that transaction, to the National Loans Fund? Well, it, well that's run by the Treasury as well. Yeah, the, Her Majesty's Treasury run, run the National Loans Fund, so they, I think they're really, uh-huh. okay. they're, they're, really, they're really the only institution. I suppose we could ask the Bank of England, but I, I, I don't think... No, I think, I, think, I think it's in the remit of the Treasury. And they refu- yeah, they're, they're refu- yeah they're, they refuse to answer the question uh, stating, you know, um, a risk to national economic... Security. Um, That's bizarre. Okay. And, and also, and, and, and also a risk, a risk of um, potential crime. You know, so if, if people know how the system works, maybe that increases the possibility of crime. I think that they were the two, they were the okay. two, um, they were the two uh, sort of exemptions that, that they raised. I went back to them and explained how how there are there are lots of occasions where this stuff has been described in a lot of detail as it relates to the consolidated fund. And so the fact that the same procedure could also apply to the national loans fund hardly seems to be, you know, um, something, something that adds a significant amount of extra security risk, you know, uh, just because it's just, just, just because it's applied to the national loans fund when it's, when it's, when it's well known about the consolidated fund, but they, they still refused. So I guess we're, we're wondering what to do next. I mean, there, there are a few, there are a few avenues that we could go down. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's probably the most extreme sort of rebuff that we've had, I think. That's bizarre. It's like, it, it, I know you guys are computer savvy. Computer by uh, security by obscurity. I mean, that's what they're doing. They think, yeah, I mean, yeah. okay. Um, all right. Yeah, it's, it, it's utter nonsense, Jeff. It's complete and utter nonsense, the stuff that they're coming out with. I just thought that no competent operation uh, would claim that understanding how the National Loans Fund transfers the consolidate from them back. Um, it's just it's just not even in the if, if their systems are that bad then they shouldn't be running them mm-hmm. it's their uh, it's it was it was a, um, it's just uh, well it's an excuse it's an excuse to rebuff yeah. they don't think that the information commissioner will uh, which is our regulator will override them yeah. i think one yeah. one quite one quite funny example of um these uh, public record uh, queries uh, one that neil made where you asked you asked where where does the national insurance fund have its bank account um, and you are, so so the national insurance fund. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know if you noticed, Jeff. In the, the, the national insurance fund is is this kind of uh, statutory entity in the United Kingdom that that collects contributions from people. It's really just a, like a form of tax, and then it pays out certain social security benefits. And it, it's mm-hmm. it's kind it's kind of slightly separated from from some of the other functioning of, of the government finances, at least in law. At least in law, it is. Um, and we. Yeah, Neil, Neil, Neil asked. So it's 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 administered by Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, the tax agency in the UK. And yeah, Neil asked them first, where is the National Insurance Fund account? Where is it held? Is it at the Bank of England? Is it at a commercial bank? What you know, where is it? And they said, they basically, what did they say, Neil? They basically said, we've got no record. Oh, they, they kept, that, 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 yeah, they came back and said, uh, I said, well, it was in the account, you see. So I I referred them to the account. So this this. Um, this reference to a charge on this uh, this national insurance fund account held at the government banking service. Can you um, can you tell me whether you still have that account open or not? Because obviously the charge had disappeared in recent in more recent accounts, mm-hmm. and they came back and said um, we've uh, we've no record of that actual account uh, existing. We've no idea where it's done. Oh, and by the way, we've destroyed all the records yeah. about it. Uh, I know we're supposed to keep them six years, but we haven't in this case. Sorry. Wow. Um, and and so then I asked them another question. I said, "All right, then, okay. Uh, in that case, where is the uh, uh, where does the National Insurance Fund keep its its current account? Expecting to get an answer, or will we keep it at the Bank of England?" And so that was a separate request. And I got back saying, "Oh yes, we keep it at the Government Banking Service <laughs> at Barclays at the Government Banking Service." Um, and so you got this situation where if you asked it the question uh, in. in uh, in one form, you got an answer of we have no idea what what this thing is, and then if you ask it in another direction, uh, yes, there it is, huh. um, still alive and alive and well and living in Dulwich. Huh. You know, it's, it's that sort of uh, um, <laughs> it's that sort of response. 
it's very strange. So with freedom of information requests, sometimes you do have to ask it again in a slightly different fashion just to be absolutely sure that they haven't got it wrong. Uh, okay, uh, let's move on to topic two. I'd like to keep this to 10 to 15 minutes at the most, and then we'll move on to my specific questions about uh, your paper. Um, so next topic is uh, you are reporting on something that is deliberately and ridiculously complicated. And uh, I had a quite a hard time reading it. And I don't think it has anything to do with your writing. I think it just has to do with your reporting on something that's really insanely complicated uh, and arguably intentionally so. Uh, but also, I think Neil brought up the example of, uh, uh, I don't remember exactly how you worded it, but basically they're, they're doing a paint job on top of a paint job on top of a paint job instead of scraping it all off and fixing it and you know doing it yeah. right. So that's mm -hmm. part of the problem as well. Um, but that makes it very convenient to keep people confused uh, as well. So how do you take a deliberately complicated labyrinthine topic and make it something understandable by the general public? That is the goal. And, and that is kind of MMT's goal as well of taking what is, I mean, I think this is particularly complicated, the UK example, but of taking the complication of how it works and making it understandable by the general public. You, your paper needs to do your, we need someone to understand all of the details, but then we need to be able to communicate that in a way that is understandable by the general public. And you cannot, it's impossible to say all of it. It's impossible. Reading the paper, you can forget the beginning by the time you reach the middle. Like that's how much there is. So how do you, how do you do that? How do you manage that? You need yours kind of creating the reference manual that people are going to refer back to. But what, what happens now? Yeah, that's the, I mean, one of the things that we're, we've been tasked to do is actually to write a, a chapter for a book, um, which takes this reference and then tries to make it a little bit more understandable. We've had the first discussion about that and scratched his heads and think, I thought, oh my God, what would we let ourselves in for? <laughs> Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, so uh, you know we've uh, that's that that is the task. It was always the case that this this document was very much the question of being the the reference document, the one that we can always um, point to as that's how it actually works. But now we've and it was also deliberately constructed so that it wasn't NMT biased. Yes. It was it was designed to be agnostic. It was designed to be a description of the way that the uh, the UK system works um, and we've we've you know we've we've tried to forget that we come from an MMT background as much as we possibly can and tried not to let it influence too much um, and I mean obviously it's still there because fundamentally that's that's where we're coming from but we've tried our best to remove the wording of MMT from it to uh, to strip out the um, the particular phrases for it we don't use for example net financial assets mm. In the document, hmm. um, we, we we use different terms to uh, to try and um, remove the uh, any MMT influence from it. Hmm. However, now we need to write the document using those MMT, or we need to write another document hmm. um, using those MMT terms and bringing it back into. So this is what it means from from an MMT point of view, and that's our next and rather large task. I think we've got a double chapter on the land, haven't we? Have. Yes. <laughs> what have we let ourselves in for? Yes. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. So again, I, I think you you hit the nail on the head in 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 stating that uh, the task in in writing this document, this paper, was about uh, no distillation of the detail. Just put it all on paper and. Uh, and then use it as a reference document. Um, many people came back to us saying, it's far too complicated, we can't understand it. And well, uh, that's unfortunate, but somebody had to write down the detail. And uh, and that's what we tasked ourselves with. Um, hence, it is a very meaty and very difficult document to, uh, to read. It's not bedtime reading. Well, not unless you're suffering from insomnia. <laughs> <laughs> one, one, one thing I think, I mean, you know, I... I I discovered MMT, I don't know, maybe about 10 years ago. And I suppose the thing that I imagine everybody 
uh, is attracted to MMT for is that it does the simplification well. And obviously, some people would criticise it and say it's 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 simplifying too much. But I think I think in terms of sort of sound bites and easy to digest sort of rhetoric. Uh, and, and I don't know if I wanted to be kind of uh, cynical in a way. Marketing, you know, MMT's excellent at that. It, it knows how to describe some of the, the fundamental parts of the system in a really catchy way. Hmm. And 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 I'm I was really attracted to MMT for that reason. And I still am. I still like you know, you know, government spends money into existence. Uh, government bonds are a form of money. Um, tax isn't for revenue it's for other things you know those those are those are sound bites that, that i think we've shown are true in the united kingdom certainly and they're, they're quite easy to digest in one sense although i think when you come to mmt and coming to mmt from a perspective of the uk where perhaps you might argue mmt isn't as developed as it is in say the us for example um coming coming at it from a perspective in the in the united kingdom those sound bites and those sort of on the face of it, very straightforward arguments suddenly become quite daunting when you're chatting to somebody about it and they go, well, that's not true, is it? And then you go, then, and then all of a sudden you're, you're kind of thinking, well, maybe it isn't, I'm not sure. It sounds, it sounds very intuitive and it sounds like it should be how the system works. It sounds more convincing than that other sort of fairy tale that we're told. However, I don't know the details. So Maybe it's not mm. true. You know, the Bank of England's independent after all, isn't it? So surely, surely the government doesn't create money, you know. And it's mm. at that it's at that point when the simple, really nicely rhetorical arguments kind of become a little bit more difficult and, and you need the detail. And mm. I think and I think what we set ourselves out to do, I, I think probably individually at first and then together, was to sort of try and pull together all of the detail and all of the evidence and actually ask ourselves, is it true? Is MMT true in the United Kingdom? Are some of the aspects true or are all of the aspects true? What is it? What's the answer to all of those questions? And and and, and that was missing. That was completely missing. And I think that's the, the hole that we've filled by doing this work. We've fleshed out um, the detail that helps to, helps to navigate some of the questions that MMT raises uh, in the United Kingdom context. Um, so I think one, one of my answers to your question, Jeff, would be that MMT already does the simplified side of things well and what was required in the uk perspective was the detail the complicated horrible detail mm. now I, I also still acknowledge and I, and I would love to be involved in producing something that's maybe um or, or producing lots of things that are maybe halfway between those things you know can we simplify the united kingdom system for people so that they can digest it easily but also have the confidence that it's true and that it's well evidenced and that's that's not a that's not straightforward but but I think it's something that you know we're, we're starting to do, and I, I suppose I suppose one part of that is to write smaller pieces, maybe with less balance sheets, and breaking the mm. break, breaking the breaking the story up into into I guess bite sized chunks. But yeah, but yeah, I mean, there's probably not one single answer. Um, but yeah, as as Richard said, the, the main the main goal for this document was was to to include all of the all of the, the detail. Uh, so okay, so let me ask: Is this do you see this as, I mean, aside from, you know, it needs whatever, is the document kind of done as is? Have you, have you, have you reached that your goal as far as covering all the topics you wanted to cover? I would say that um, from my perspective, from this sort of historical stuff, I, I could certainly add in many more appendices about the history in terms of uh, government debt instruments, uh, for want of a better uh, term the history of those, some of the history of of tally sticks, for example, the, so the history of the ancient exchequer and how uh, spending occurred then, how uh, revenue collection occurred, and that it would all tie in and, and bring a nice sort of round, rounding to the narrative um, of the current document. However, I think um, that would be a tremendous amount of more writing to be done. So as it stands, I think it, it does stand alone and uh, and it works pretty well. So I'm content at the moment. <laughs> okay. Just to go back to your, one of your uh, points previously, Jeff, there's no way that Google Docs will, will, will allow us to edit that document anymore. It really started no. to it really it really started to creak when we were doing the second version, uh, which was I think, <laughs> something like something like two two hundred pages. So um, yeah, I you think we're, split we're, it into chapters. Yeah, yeah, we're definitely at the limit with Google Docs. That's definitely the yeah. case. Yeah, I've experienced that for yeah. sure. 
We definitely hit the uh, we, we hit the buffers with it, with it pretty. Uh, it was starting to sweat, <laughs> big style, wasn't it? At the end, <laughs> we were sat there thinking, "Oh my god, we don't have to change the technology before we get this done." So I reached that so point in, long, in some... long before two hundred pages. Long before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it it it's worked really well. It, it we pushed it far further than uh, than I thought we would be able to. Mm. I think we were talking at a couple of points whether we needed to swing it across to Word, but we hadn't we hadn't actually done that. Um, and it's uh, it, it's held up reasonably well. So yeah. we have a system there that we can use then for the next for the next document that allows all three of us to be able to work on um, on this this chapter that we've got to do. Um, and you know the systems are there to work. So I think we'll uh, I should imagine we'll continue to use that particular tool okay. to uh, to do the, the next set of writing. Okay. But yeah, we need to. Um, it does need breaking down. I mean, there is a consolidated section within the existing document, um, the, uh, the the appendix. I think it's is it appendix A? Is it the first one? I think it is. Um, that's got all the balance sheets in there, and that runs through a full a full run through of the entire entire system in in detail. And then section eight of the document actually um, runs two consolidated views across that particular appendix. Um, and one of the consolidated views is what you would call a traditional view where the uh, Bank of England is considered to be part of the private sector. Mm -hmm. And that's the view that you would expect mainstream people to use. That's how they see the uh, see the world of the government talking to a banking system. Mm -hmm. And the other one's what we call the whole of government view, which is actually based around the whole of government accounts, which uh, and the whole government accounts pulls the Bank of England as a public uh, as a public sector company into the into the whole of government, and we consolidate on that view. And when we consolidate on that view, you find that you get the NMT descriptions. So section eight, um, um, the, the second part of that is the NMT consolidation. Oh, okay. So so the whole of government view is your invention. Or, uh, no, the whole of government view is actually a thing. You look on the, the whole of government accounts is a thing in the UK. Okay, okay. So, so I, I understand that the whole of government view basically hides some of the sausage. That that yeah. and the, when it's when it's part of the public sector, you see a lot more of that accounting um, going yeah. back and forth, which which makes it feel like there's you know the the myths are much easier to 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 fool people with when it's part of the private yeah. sector. Um, okay, so so the whole of government and accounts is essentially the MMT, as close to possible as possible to the MMT yeah. consolidated view. And when I, there when are I say consolidated juicy. view, I just want to be clear that I'm talking <laughs> about how you basically can ignore as much detail as possible. Yeah, that's okay. right. The, the whole of government accounts is very useful from an MMT point of view. Okay. There are some juicy quotes from, the, um, from some of the older um, accounts that are available. One of the classic ones being that um, it describes how quantitative easing is nothing more than a um, an asset swap, and it describes that within the actual accounts that are published on the uh, uh, on the UK government site. Mm, okay, uh, I've got the I've got the quote somewhere in one of the blog posts I did years ago that actually just explains that when you consolidate it, the um, the gilts that are held by the Bank of England disappear. Okay, and uh, and it, it's it's a replacement of a liability of the National Loans Fund with a liability of the Bank of England. Okay. And it explains that in black and white in a set of accounts, nothing to do with MMT, not from an MMT paper or anything like that. It's actually written in the uh, in the published accounts. Hmm. Um, and yeah, so they know how this works. It's, uh, it's the people who construct these accounts know how it works. And uh, they don't uh, want anybody else to know by the look of it. I mean, there are, okay. those accounts are published by the Treasury, and yeah, yeah, in in them they list the liabilities of the consolidated public sector, and they include, you know, the gilts and treasury bills, which are you know our our well bonds and bills, uh, and also the central bank reserves. You know, they're all equally liabilities of the consolidated public sector, and that's 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 a that's a system of accounts published by the Treasury. Um, you know, so it's. It's fairly close to MMT, I would say. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, all right. So on to my first specific question about your paper. Um, the consolidated fund, the ways and means account, the debt management account, these are funds, which is similar, I think, to an account. But 
what is the nature of a fund? What is it, it is not an institution, which I spent a little more time than I'm, you know, thinking that it was. I guess that means what cell spreadsheet cells does it? What columns and cell? What columns and rows does it have? Who's in charge of it? What is the money used for? Where is it held? Like, what is the nature of a fund? Right. Okay. Well, a, f- a fund is it, the best way of thinking about it is a subsidiary. If you think a subsidiary company, um, if you have a subsidiary company, that company draws up a set of accounts. It owns sets of assets in its own right. It owns sets of liabilities in its own right. So it's like a you know, if you think sort of like company or business unit that you're actually drawing up a. Uh, a set of accounts for so it it operates like a separate organization but it isn't a separate organization it's like a virtual virtual organization so the consolidated fund annoyingly has a consolidated fund account at the bank of england but it's got lots of other accounts all over the places it, it also um, owns various assets both physical and virtual um, obviously it's got various liabilities and and obviously it's also got an equity. Um, Can you define uh, it has entry. an equity? Yeah, as in equity, as in the, a balancing, which actually is really just a balancing item. Um, oh, had, and that's okay. actually that's actually the source of the source of money in the United Kingdom is this balancing item. That is the asset side of net financial assets. So if when we on in the um, in the private sector, have net financial assets in MMT terms. The balancing item is this um, is this difference between assets and liabilities within the the consolidated fund. Is that the sweet generous? In, in that, is that the sweet generous? Yeah, thing? this is the sweet generous thing. If you if you again in our appendix A, you will find that however much net financial wealth the private sector entities within that have, it is exactly and equally balanced by this sweet generous asset that the consolidated fund holds, which is nothing more. Than a balancing item that says that the um, the assets, the actual physical assets, are less than the liabilities that have been that have been issued. It's a number. And that's how money's issued in the in the UK. It's just uh, you know the assets. It's this magic asset on the consolidated fund, and that's what means that you've got pound notes in your pocket. It's just a number. The sweet generis it's is just a number. number. It's just a number in a uh, in this in this set of accounts in this subsidiary operation, this fund, and that's it. Okay. And that's the central basis for everything. So the, the consolidated fund and in similarly the ways and means account and the debt management account. Uh, so these are kind of, I mean, you say it's, it's, it's a, a subsidiary of a business essentially. So that implies mm. that it has a staff, it has a location, but yeah. is that, is that correct? It is. Yeah. The H, HM treasury, the um, exchequer fund um, and accounts um, team in HM treasury run these funds. And the funds are run as effectively like separate separate units. So we have the consolidated fund is a fund. This, this is going to sound really strange. We run out of words here and, <laughs> and it ends up being very umpty dumpty. So hopefully you'll be able to follow along. Okay, so the consolidated fund is a is a, a, a subsidiary fund organization. The debt management account is actually a fund that has an account called the debt management account at the Bank of England. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> it's madness. The National Loans Fund is a fund. Now, the National Loans Fund contains within it the Ways and Means account, which is actually a bank account at the Bank of England. And there are actually two of them, just to make it even more exciting. There's the, ways and, there's the long-term Ways and Means account, which is, a, um, which is a liability of the National Loans Fund. And then there's the Ways and Means account 2, which is a, a bank account at the Bank of England that the debt management account uses on behalf of the National Loans Fund. Right, if you're not lost after that, <laughs> you're doing better than I am. <laughs> I think I think the way that I the way that I think of the consolidated fund and the national loans fund is is as as legal structures. Uh, the, the the consolidated fund is referenced you know hundreds of times across legislation, and it's by tying items of legislation to the consolidated fund. I think that, that gives that legislation power because it means that it it gets to use all of the legal apparatus that is associated with the consolidated fund, which includes the thing that I mentioned earlier. You know, if, if if you tie some legislation to the consolidated fund, it appears in an account at the Bank of England. And so in that sense, um, you know, it's I suppose the word fund makes you think of it's like a pot and taxes go into it and money comes out of it. But I don't know if it's any more than just a legal structure that that facilitates the uh, the spending. 
the spending of the government via the Bank of England. But there is there is a sense of that that it is a set at its heart is a set of rows and columns, and each of those cells has a purpose. Well, it's it's more that it's a set of accounts. It's you you draw up a it literally draw up a separate set of accounts. There are separate sets of accounts for the consolidated fund. There are separate sets of accounts for the national loans fund, and and there are separate sets of accounts for the debt management account. Every single one of those is a is a is a completely separate. Uh, so it's it's just like running a um, a business unit or a uh, or a subsidiary company where if you say for example if you see, I don't know whether anybody's actually done this but set up a special purpose vehicle as it's called to to build a property and sell it um, that's sort of how the fund would work except obviously it persists it continues on for forever does the does the consolidated fund but you draw up a set of accounts and everything's associated with this special purpose vehicle and and you do everything in the context of that and it has its own bank accounts and all and all that and that's how the uh, that's how these consolidated funds work so it's more than just a, i would say it's more than just a spreadsheet it's a set of accounts okay. that you need to that we need to draw up including assets physical assets and and liabilities monetary assets and uh, monetary liabilities and a and a balancing item I guess okay. there's, there's, a, there's a reason why it's called the Consolidate Fund, and that's and that's because uh, you know I think through history, and Richard will be able to comment on this a bit more than me, but through through history, there was there's been an effort to consolidate, you know, all of the revenue streams of government and all of the expenditure streams into into one pot. Uh, I'm using the pot the word pot now, even though I've just said it's not it's not correct. But I think mm-hmm. so. Sort of legally, I think I think I don't, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but I think I think the way that I read that. Is that that history is that um, essentially essentially what taxation does? It's not the thing that a lot of people think it think it does. You know, taxation taxation is tied to to expenditure, I think, but in a way that is different to to um, to what people usually usually believe. And um, but with this consolidation process that occurred, you know, through the sort of 1800s and the 1900s in the United Kingdom, whereby all of these streams of revenue and all of these streams of expenditure were consolidated, it consolidated into one sort of legal concept, the consolidated fund. There's a there's a there's a phrase that appears in legislation, which is which is known as the growing produce of the consolidated fund, and that appears in legislation. Uh, and what that means is, uh, so when it, when some expenditure is charged on the consolidated fund, it's charged on the growing produce of the consolidated fund. That's that's literally the words in in, in the legislation. And what that means is the growing produce. Growing means produce, produce. The, gr- the growing produce. You know, a bit like you'd have yes. the, the, the produce of a of a farm, I suppose. Okay, produce. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and that's literally the the, the phrase in, in the legislation. And what it means is what it refers to is all of the total the total value of the future expected tax revenue. That's what the growing produce is. So implicitly in UK legislation, the the expenditure that comes out of the consolidated fund is not charged on the taxes that have already been collected. It's charged on the taxes that might be collected in the future or, or are expected to be collected in, in, in the future. And so what that means is that expenditure is implicitly uh, an, an advance or, a, or a, a form of credit advanced on the security of future taxes. And I think that's something that, from an MMT perspective, a lot of people would agree with because they would say that you don't require you don't require taxes literally to pr- to provide pound for pound or dollar for dollar the money that you're about to spend. You don't need it before, and you don't need it to match unit for unit the the amount that you want to spend. But you do need to have tax in place because it's the because it's the the ability to enforce tax that gives currency the currency its value you know there's i guess there's that sort of chartlist tradition which mmt i think i think um agrees with and i think you see that in in legislation in the united kingdom it's because it's because you have the the existence of a tax which is tied to the consolidated fund in the legislation that then credit can be drawn on the consolidated fund on the security of those future taxes so i read that as as the uk legislation historic and current showing that Taxes provide a basis for a, a government to spend money into existence. They don't need to okay. tax money before they spend it, and they don't need to tax money to the exact amount that they want to spend, which are the tropes that are usually you know used in mainstream discourse. But the point is that taxation, the ability to to, to tax, gives the government such such a strong creditworthiness that it can create money, 
spend money into existence. Uh, and, and that's the sense in which uh, tax and expenditure are tied together, not the sense which is usually invoked, but that's the sense. And you see, and you see that directly in the concept of the consolidated fund, where all streams of revenue and all streams of expenditure are consolidated in this one legal concept. Okay. What's interesting, particularly about the consolidated fund, of course, is that the it's actually HM Revenue and Customs that collects tax. That's the one that actually pays over the tax not individual people. Everybody pays effectively, advances their money to HM Revenue and Customs and informally it's HM Revenue and Customs that then uh, puts the tax into the consolidated fund and pays the tax. So there is only one taxpayer in the in the UK and fun, amusingly that's HMRC. Okay. Um, <laughs> and uh, But what's particularly interesting about that is almost certainly they only do that at the end of the day. So they collect everything together in their own in their own account and then at the end of the day, they forward it to the consolidated fund. So there's no actual mechanism by which taxes can be collected before spend expenditure. Mm. It's always done afterwards. Because the consolidated okay. fund account starts every day with a balance of zero. So it then spends and then then it only receives the tax at the end of the day. Right, right. Um, okay, okay. Uh, I have a question, actually kind of related question uh, from a patron of mine, and he basically is asking for a smoking gun reference that shows that the UK does not uh, use taxes to pay for spending. Um, I don't think the answer is probably as simple as he wants it to be, but but is there a, what is the closest that you can get to a smoking gun kind of public reference that, you know, shows the taxes don't fund spending in the UK. Well, the, the, the classic way that I deal with that is to, um, is to look at it from a system point of view. Why can't you spend everything, anything that you want? What's the actual mechanism that stops you from doing so? Well, that's fairly straightforward. You, you write a check on your account and, you know, you do the, the Oprah, you can have a car and you can have a car and you just, you know, you pay your, pay your checks out to everybody and the bank will turn around and refuse to pay them, refuse to settle the, uh, the accounts and you'll complain about that and you'll go to court and you'll say I want that bank to pay and the court will side with the bank in that case and that stops you from spending. Mm. Now in the UK um, if the Bank of England tried to stop the Treasury from uh, spending then the Treasury would go to court and the court would side with the UK Treasury and instruct the bank to pay and the reason for that is that there is a, uh, a direct reference in the Exchequer and Audits Act 1866, sections 13 and sections 15, that states very clearly that um, if uh, if the bank receives a order from the Treasury, then it is to transfer that money to the what's called principal accountants. So as far as smoking gun is concerned, that's as close as we get to it, is that the Treasury can quite literally order the Bank of England to pay anybody it wants, and the Bank of England has mm. no mechanism to refuse that order. There's, a, there's, a, there's quite an extreme illustration of that, I think, when you read the history, particularly in the, the Victorian period, the, the 19th century. And the way that the system was set up then was that there was a quarterly accounting cycle. So a quarter of a year, three months, that was the accounting cycle. And literally, over the, over the course of every three-month period, there would be debits on the consolidated fund due to, due to spending, and there would be credits on the consolidated fund due to tax revenue. But but those two things would never be reconciled with one another during the quarter. They would only be reconciled and kind of accounted for at the end of each quarter after three months had lapsed. Uh, and then it would be identified whether whether the quarterly account was in deficit or in surplus. But 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 that didn't occur during during the quarter. So literally for a whole quarter debits and credits would, would, would just accumulate. Uh, the, the debits would be serviced by the Bank of England without necessarily knowing whether there was tax coming in that would, that would balance that out. And then at the end of the quarter, if it was discovered that there was a, a deficiency on the account, then there would be a kind of like a, a formalised advance arranged with the, with the Bank of England. And so, so in that sense, there's, you know, there's absolutely no way that the, ta the taxes were, were necessarily paying for the expenditure. It was all done on 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 credit, um, implicitly credit, 
because the accounting period was 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 over a quarter and it was only reconciled at the end of that quarter. Now then if you fast forward through the 20th century, there's a bunch of changes in the legislation that, that adjust that and they, they essentially bring down that quarterly accounting cycle to just a single day. And that's really, I think, done with the um, a National Loans Act in 1968, which starts this process by which the consolidated fund will be zeroed every day. So the consolidated fund will be zeroed every day because there'll be a transfer to or from the National Loans Fund. And the very fact that in the National Loans Act 1968, it describes this in legislation and it says, if there's a deficit at the end of the day, then this will happen. So implicitly, it is anticipated that, that there may be a deficit on the consolidated fund at the end of every day, much in the same way that 100 years before, a quarterly deficit w would have been anticipated. Um, and so in, in that sense, that, that, that could be another smoking gun in the sense that in, in the 1968 National Loans Act, it's, it's explicit that the consolidated fund may issue more money in a day than it will receive in tax. Okay, um, and obviously that is still law uh, now. That's still effective law. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so taxes aren't covering all of the spending. Okay. All right. Um, okay. So, uh, next question. So, the consolidated fund is the source of moneyness in the UK, and essentially, it's that sui generis. Uh, I forget the term, but it's the thing that that shows the difference between liabilities and and assets. Yeah, that's a balancing um, item. <laughs> Okay, the balancing item, and it's essentially a number. It's just a number that that is the the source of moneyness in the UK. So the opposite side of that is the net financial assets for UK citizens. Yeah. Can you talk about the other view of that? Meaning, the the sui generis is is the I guess liability, and then the asset for the citizen is their net financial assets. What's the opposite of that? Because when you have when I give you money. I'm both a debtor and a creditor in that relationship. What's the opposite side of that relationship for that sui generis asset and then yeah. that financial asset? Yeah. So that's, I, hope, this, I hope that's clear. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, it's clear. It's fine. Yeah. So we, we it's it's called government securities. That's the overall overarching term. Um, the asset on the consolidated fund is um, what we've, we've called in the paper equity, but it's just the, the sui generis balancing item. Um, really all the action is on the liability side of the consolidation where they issue
Today I talk with all three co-authors of the 2020 paper, An Accounting Model of the UK Exchequer, which is published by the Gower Initiative for Modern Money Studies, or GIMS. The three authors are Richard Tai, Andrew Berkeley, and Neil Wilson. Today's episode is part one of a two-part conversation, but it's also part six of a larger seven-part series on the paper and its authors. The first five are personal interviews with each individual author. In part six today and seven next week, I talk with all three together about their paper in depth. It should also be noted that David Merrill played an important role in the paper and was the primary influence of this seven-part series. Today in part one, we talk largely about the meta of the experience writing the paper their workflow, the software tools they used, their unique experiences with public records requests, and how they took the large amount of work they did and finally put it all together into a coherent whole. Aside from its length, I found the paper to be quite difficult, not because of their writing, but simply because what they're writing about is really, really complicated. Before attempting to read the paper, I strongly recommend first listening to their MMT podcast interview and also watching co-author Andy Berkeley's 40-minute presentation as organized by my previous guest, Oscar Volsgaard. Links to all of these things can be found in the show notes. Speaking of difficulty, the paper was deliberately written to be an unabridged and undistilled reference manual. Someone must understand and document everything and that's the role this paper serves. Now it's time to start translating and distilling these details for the general public. Towards the end of today's episode, I start asking specific questions on the paper. One of the first is a question by an activist MMT patron named Advait. If you'd like to ask a question of my future academic guests, please consider becoming a monthly patron. But for now, let's get on to my conversation with Richard Tai, Andy Berkeley, and Neil Wilson. <laughs> 